0: I'm your host for Read, Write, Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard! Nothing Larger Than These Stars, a novel by E. Marie Robertson. Faith, what are you doing? I can't hear you! Polly's voice comes loud and sharp through my headset, so startling that I almost drop my tools. Down here in the dark, silent belly of the pit, surrounded by metal and machinery, the sound is like being punched in the head. I think, you can't hear me because I'm not talking, I'm working. But I don't say that. Polly is my friend, but even so, I shouldn't be that flippant with him when we're on duty. He's our task coordinator and is as close to a boss as I have on Iona. I'm finishing up work on this fuel coupling, I say instead. I'm almost done. I give the coupling a pat for good measure. In reality, that job has been finished for a while. I'm down here scavenging parts now, pulling together more scraps to use for my personal project. New priority, Polly booms again, and I wince. Drop it and come to intake right away. We need a lot of help in arrivals. we Will do, I say. Arrivals means new people just landing on Iona who need stat chips scanned, orientations scheduled, and permanent assignments made to residential pods and work teams. Handling arrivals is not as much fun for me as working in the pit, but I don't really mind it. It's generally easy, and everyone treats me like I'm some kind of magical being because I'm one of only a few people on Iona who can sort things out if the computers misbehave. I can make them do other things too, but they don't need to know about that. I gaze at the scraggly collection of parts in my pull card and sigh. Not so much coming in these days. Iona's rank as a service planet has been degraded by the transfer of commerce to other sectors. At this rate, my project could take a while to finish. I tuck my cart into its stashed space and jog up the ramp leading out of the pit. Even in the dull flat light of Iona, it takes a moment for my eyes to adjust. When I do, I see the square crawling with people in a way I've never experienced before. Transport vehicles are streaming overhead as thick as a cloud of Ionian sand gnats. In the distance, I spot my pod sister, Wenda, hurtling toward the intake building with an intense expression on her face. She waves at me frantically. Hurry, she shouts. It looks like everybody from Bartizel is moving over. We learned from the company a few weeks ago that the Bartizel service location would soon be closed. The news was something of a boon for Iona because that means we're the only remaining service planet in the sector. We were happy to think we'd be getting Bartizel's customers, but now we're apparently getting their population as well. More mouths to feed, more bodies to house and keep healthy. All in the face of less and less work that requires people as the robots become smarter and more capable. Everybody? I shout back, quickening my pace. Where are we going to put them all? Bartizel had an active population of around 600. Finding space among 30 pods for 600 new people, some of them families. (sighs) No wonder Polly called me in a panic. Wenda throws her hands into the air in a gesture of surrender. We'll figure it out because we have to. We'll be resourceful. It's what we do here. Intake is wall-to-wall by the time we reach the building. The former residents of Bartizel are everywhere, sitting on every available surface. Desks, railings, tables, even the floor. They're tired, bedraggled, and dazed. Some of them are carrying fat-heavy packs, while others have only a kit bag or nothing at all. They range in age from very young to very old, and some of them are sick. I wonder when they found out their base of operations was closing. But then Polly is in my face, shouting at me to hurry to my station. I run to my terminal, and he begins herding people into line in front of me. I take a deep breath, look into the drawn, sad face of the first former resident of Bartizelle, put on my most comforting smile, and say, I'm Faith. Welcome to Iona. It takes the rest of the day to sort out the newcomers, but like all things on Iona, it does finally get done. The total number of transferees is listed at 408 rather than the 600-plus residents officially documented on that planet. There's no word about the remaining 200. I wrangle out of Polly the information that no more Bartoselians are expected, but I'm still curious. The company is not known to make mistakes counting assets, and people are assets as much as spaceships and drones. When a transferee with the bearing of someone used to being in charge comes through my line, I ask him casually about the discrepancy in numbers. He shrugs and says... I guess they moved on somewhere else. His eyes are a strange luminous gray, and the way he's averting them says he knows more, but he won't be sharing it with me. So I let it drop, welcome him to Iona, process his stat chip, and direct him to Polly's pod. In the end, we establish ten new pods, lucky that we never tore down the old visiting flight crew quarters, and add people to existing pods wherever there's room and a fit. Pods of 14 or 15 are booted up to 20. It will be tight at first, but we'll adapt. Everything is going to be a lot more crowded now. In a single afternoon, Iona's population has nearly doubled. After the last person leaves the intake center, I walk out to the porch to find Polly, Winda, and Polly's sister Fanny sprawled out on the steps, smoking and drinking brew. Well, that was fun, Fanny is saying in her gravelly voice, shifting her ample form on the stones. She hands me her flask. I take a long swig of the bitter, cold brew and sigh as it courses down my throat and into my stomach. The effect is instant relaxation. I can't believe we just processed all those people, Wenda says. She reaches for the flask, and I hand it to her. We might actually have enough people to fill up our work teams now. We haven't had that in a long time. That would be something, I say. They seem like decent people. I think they'll fit in well here after a while. Polly snorts. A long while, he says. Why did not you put the governor in my pod? The what? The governor of bardizel Regal fellow, 40-ish, dark hair, about so tall... Polly gestures well over his own head. He's talking about Mr. Gray Eyes. He was the governor? It didn't say that on his stat chip. It wouldn't. Polly smirks, pleased to know something I don't. That possession was chosen by the people, not by the company. Well, I put him in your pod because the program said he fit best there. Do you, you think he needs to be leading his own pod? Polly thinks for a minute. I don't think he wants to lead his own pod, he says. Fanny, who has taken the flask from Winda and indulged in several more deep pulls, suddenly perks up. I'm glad he's in our pod, she says. He's handsome. I fancy him. Polly scowls at his older sister. Don't go getting any ideas, he says. He's probably 15 years younger than you, and you don't even know him. Fanny takes another drink and raises an eyebrow at her brother. Age doesn't matter, she says. And I know everyone else here, and I don't fancy any of them, so I say it's worth a shot. Polly looks exasperated. Wenda hides a laugh behind her hand and casts a sideways glance at me. We're always amused when the elders talk about love and sex like their tribal teens, even though Wenda and I are very nearly elder ourselves. On Iona, that just means someone who has been here at least 10 years and is any age beyond 16. But Polly and Fanny were raised on Haka, and that planet's culture is very different. Fanny catches Wenda's expression and laughs good-naturedly. Wenda, little Wenda, she says, waving her smoke in Wenda's general direction. You're how old? 25? You're still a baby. On Hawkeye, you'd need the permission of two elders before you could pair with someone. Wenda and I have heard this story before. I'm 32, but you and Polly are old farts, Wenda says. We know you'd need permission from two youngers before either of you could pair. What are you now, 200? The joke's an old one. We've seen their intake data. Polly is 52 and Fanny is 55. Middle-aged on Hawkeye, maybe, but definitely not elderly by any planet's definition. I pick up the jibe. This could be a good time for you, Fanny, I say. The new arrival skewed the median age of our population upward. More choice. Fanny looks pleased with herself. Well, I believe I've made my choice. But how about you, Winda? You might like an older lover. They have more talents than younger ones. Wenda laughs, but a powerful blush burns through her chestnut-colored cheeks. Fanny takes a drag from the smoke, followed by a long drink from her flask. Let me know. I can fix you up, she says with a wink. Polly rolls his eyes. Now we're all laughing. What about me? I say in mock indignation. You're not going to offer to fix me up with one of these special older lovers? Hmm. The governor might suit you. Too bad I've already claimed him, Fanny says, waving her smoke in the air. Just as well. You could probably only be suitably paired with some magical being we've never seen before. Nobody on Iona can handle you, and probably nobody from Bartizel either. I smile ruefully and the people surrounding me, my de facto family, my planet mates, give me looks ranging from pity to curiosity. They all know I had someone once. They all understand the dissolution of that relationship is the reason I chose to live my life in a sparkling coastal city on a company planet to come to the dust and grease and daily hard work of a tiny independent service planet on the hind end of the mining sector. Some know a few details, but almost no one has the whole story. They all think of it as tragic somehow, and they all wish I had someone here. But I like my solitude. I've cultivated it carefully, and it works for me. A soft silence settles around us. Iona's two tiny moons creep up over the horizon as our weakling sun sinks below it. The square that was teeming with chaos and people just a few hours ago is empty and still, a testament to how resourceful we are. The new people are all checked in and assigned to work teams and living quarters. Tomorrow they will wake up and find comforting routines that will help ease the transition. And Ionians will act as if these new residents aren't new at all, but instead have always been here. That's how we are. We get a lot of strays on this planet, but they don't stay strays for long. Fanny holds her smoke up to Polly. He accepts it and takes a drag. Day's done, he says. Let's go home, old woman. Fanny smiles at her brother in a moment of pure unguarded fondness as she clambers to her feet. But then the moment is over and she says, Let's do that. Time for me to get to know the governor better. Oh, Fanny, Polly huffs before slipping his arm through hers. We descend the steps together and head for our pods. Five of the new arrivals from Bartizel were added to my own pod, two adult women and a man and a pair of teenage twins. By the time Wenda and I walk in, our pod mates have made them welcome and spent the last few hours shuffling hammocks and personal zones to make room for them. I'm bone tired, but as pod leader, one of my responsibilities is to see to the new arrivals, so I make it a point to let them know that they are welcome and ask if they need anything before I head to my quarters for the night. They're doing as well as one might expect. Shell-shocked, exhausted, and in no real mood for small talk, but grateful to have a roof over their heads. I also thank my podmates for doing what they had to to make space for the former Bartazellians. We're now a pod of nineteen. It will be tight and a little harder to manage food and water stores and energy requirements, but I'll start dealing with that tomorrow. I grab a bite to eat and go to my room. A bonus of being pod leader is a private room and I'm selfishly relieved to walk into the solitude of it. Pleased that my podmates continue to respect this tradition despite the new hammocks hanging over one another in the larger sleeping spaces. One of our little ones has left a drawing of a daisy on my pillow. I smile as I pick it up and study it before pinning it up on my wall. They must be learning about homeworld flora in school now. The only vegetation on Iona is scraggy and tough from constant exposure to wind and sand. Nothing even remotely like a daisy grows here. But everyone knows I was born on homeworld, and I may have mentioned liking flowers at some point. The phrase, I miss flowers runs through my head, and just like that, tears are rolling down my face, carving tracks in the dust I've yet to wash off. I create a million excuses in the few seconds it takes to wipe them away with the back of my hand. I'm tired. It's been a long day. I'm empathizing with the worry and upset of Bartizel's former residents. I'm feeling a little feverish. I didn't eat enough. I'm dehydrated. Those things are true, but so is the simple statement that evoked my tears. I do miss flowers. I miss green, I miss the sound of waves rolling onto the shore and bright and shining skylines and rain and things that are not covered in dust. And you, my brain adds, I miss you. No, I won't think about that, not after all this time. I push myself through undressing and washing and preparing for bed. I extinguish the light and climb into my hammock. The last thing that catches my eye as I retreat into sleep is the daisy on my wall, drawn sweetly and simply from a child's imagination. The sorrow returns and follows me into my dreams. I wake up with Iona's sunrise as Winda sounds the rising chimes. I wonder how our new citizens are doing, and I'm pleased when I step into the common room to see them all present. But even though the rest of my podmates have taken their accustomed seats around our family-style breakfast service, the transferees are all standing and almost snapped to attention when I enter the room, even the 16-year-old twins. Apparently Bartizel is much more regimented and formalized than Iona has ever cared to be. Pod leader Faith, says the oldest of the group, a forty-something woman with shoulder-length sand-colored hair. She straightens herself as if for inspection, and the four others follow suit. My podmates in the middle of eating their breakfast stare open-mouthed. The name on her newly issued beige service jacket reads Carloa. "Good morning, Carloa. Everyone please sit down and eat some breakfast," I say. "That's what I'm going to do." I sit down and reach for the closest serving dish. For a moment, an expression of pure confusion passes among the transferees. Then Carloa slowly, almost suspiciously, takes her seat. She gives the others a glance, and in response, they throw themselves into their chairs. Still, no one is eating. Our usually boisterous gathering room has become dead quiet. Please eat, I say again softly. One of the twins takes me at my word this time and reaches for a piece of toast, despite the glares thrown at him by Carloa and his sister. He returns their scowls with a raised eyebrow and a shrug, then stuffs the toast into his mouth and begins to chew. His jacket identifies him as Hen. Perfect Hin, thank you, I say, and he jumps a little before nodding toward me and resuming his chewing. And everyone, please, just call me Faith, not leader or pod leader or exalted poobah Faith, just Faith. You're making me way more special than I deserve to be. At this, the original members of my pod laugh heartily. The new transferees stare at the table and look uncomfortable, although they do all slowly begin to eat breakfast. Polly might be right. It may be a while before they adapt. After breakfast, my podmates scatter to take care of their work assignments for the day. Winda takes the new Ionians out on a tour of town and for an orientation session about what to expect living and working here. Within minutes, Polly's barking instructions into my headset. This time, the job is materials intake. This means our regular delivery of supplies has come in from home world and needs to be unloaded, cataloged, and sent to the proper storehouses. It also means care packages and personal mail. Cargo day is a good day for Ionians. The sweetly drawn daisy flashes into my mind, and I start to choke up, but I push down my emotions and hurry toward the cargo ducks on the southwestern edge of town. The job takes Polly and me four solid hours on unloading and categorizing the goods brought in by the latest Skiff. While we work through the cargo, the Skiff's pilots nap inside the launch pad control room or stroll into town for food and brew. Sometimes they chat with us, but not often. They tend to focus on getting in and out as quickly as possible. I'm sure this was some kind of company directive, but no one shared those details with us, and it marks a significant change from the way we did things in the past. Polly would never admit it, but it has been a little hard to get used to. And started with the equipment upgrades. Those sleek new skiffs are formed from modular parts and are quick and easy to build. They hold almost as much as the old landers but require only half the crew and all their maintenance is done by robot. Not so long ago a materials delivery would have meant a full-size lander and an overnight stay for its crew of six so Ionians could perform the necessary hours of maintenance work before relaunch. When the company switched to skiffs like these and why wouldn't they given all the advantages Iona suffered. Although we always provided overnight quarters for the crews free of charge, they ate and drank and gambled at their own expense while they were here. And it wasn't only an economic benefit. The crews brought news and stories of homeworld and of their travels through the sector and beyond. They were a point of connection for Ionians. One more connection severed. We're down to the last two crates of goods. Polly scans one, laughs, then scans it again. He says, this one is yours. Mine, I ask, puzzled. I wave my scanner over it, and a holograph pops up with my name and picture. The notation is personal durable goods, which means, well, anything. The sender is a generic company address. The crate is large, maybe six feet by four feet and approximately four feet high. Polly looks at me with an arched eyebrow. I have no idea what might be in this crate. I shrug, punch in the coordinates to my personal storage, and send the flat scuttling on its way. It's from the company, I say to Polly. New bath mats or something? He laughs and moves on to the last crate. It has no named recipient. Instead, the hologram reads, warehousing leader, Iona, and nothing more. Polly shakes his head. Idiots, he mutters. We don't have a warehousing leader. You're getting one in about a month, says the skiff pilot, who is emerging from the control room, stretching. I heard them talking about it last week. Some hotshot guy. He's being taken out of deep space for personal reasons. Oh, great, moans Polly. A fancy pants with emotional issues. The pilot laughs. Isn't that always the way, she says. Somebody decides they're a star god, and then they can't handle being out in the black. I wonder how much he'll like being in the dirt, I mutter, and she smirks knowingly. My guess is he'll hate it just enough to be a huge pain in the ass, she says. Maybe if you're lucky, you can patch him up and get him back into space before he drives you crazy. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt this little tea party, but speaking of getting back into space... Polly gestures toward the now-empty skiff and casts the pilot an expectant look. The tough little articulated robots we call Five Fingers have done a full system check and performed any needed maintenance while we were unloading the cargo. Everything is ready to go. Ah, right, can I have ten? The pilot asks. Polly nods. She drops the mic on her headset and begins delivering instructions to her crew. What now? I ask Polly. He consults his holo-tablet. No more arrival scheduled and maintenance is all caught up, he says. Grab a bite to eat if you want. You can help with orientation for the new residents over at the presentation theater. Fanny and Winda are both there. Inwardly, I sigh. No excuse to go down to the pit then. My project gets another day behind. But outwardly, I smile and acquiesce. Good enough, I say. I turn to head back to town and wave to the pilot, who gives me a thumbs up and mouths the words, good luck. I'm puzzled for a few seconds before I remember the soon-to-arrive warehousing leader. I had already forgotten all about him. Most of Iona's new residents are seated in the presentation theater by the time I arrive. Fanny, Wenda, and a handful of other Ionians are there too, in a cluster near the stage. What can I do, I ask. Wenda makes a face. Pray you will not believe what I've been through today. Oh no, our new podmates? Well, not all of them. I think the twins in particular will do fine. Carloa. Yes, she has some interesting preconceived notions. Well, everyone has ideas about other cultures they're encountering for the first time, though, I start. It's a normal response. Wenda cuts me off. This is not normal. She thinks we're horrible people. There's so much resentment, yet it's almost as if she's afraid of us. What? Where would they pick up such a... We'll talk later, she interrupts, casting a meaningful glance over my head. I'm about to object when Mr. Grey Eyes appears at my shoulder. He's slightly less guarded than yesterday and actually manages a smile. Your Faith, he says. You checked me in. I did your intake, yes, I say. I'm sorry, I don't remember your name. I do remember his eyes, though, luminous and pale, like Iona's moons. Graham. Graham Thorne. Well, pleased to meet you again, Graham Thorne. Faith Feathergrass. Feathergrass? Like the plant? Why, yes, like the plant. Is there feather grass on Bardizel? His face darkens for a moment. No, we don't have much in the way of ornamental grasses on Bardazelle, he responds. Its terrain is much like Iona's. Sand, wind, more sand. Well, how did you come to learn about feather grass? Part of your schooling? Again, a small smile. Something like that. He catches Fanny's eye, and she smiles at him in a way I imagine might be conspiratorial if I were given to those kinds of wild and reckless thoughts. Did you find my holo, she asks him in a sweet sing-song voice. He produces a small holo tablet from his pocket and hands it to her. Fanny forgot her notes, he explains. She asked me to run back to the pod and get them. All the seats are taken now. Oh, dear, Fanny sings in mock consternation, scanning the packed house. You'll have to sit on the edge of the stage here with faith. Oh, no, I think with a sigh. Please tell me this is not what I think it is. As if in response, Fanny looks squarely at me and winks. Graham misses none of this and colors almost as intensely as I do. Wenda stifles an outright laugh. I turn apologetically to Graham, who responds by gesturing toward the edge of the stage as though it's a gilded carriage. He waits for me to settle in before parking himself next to me. The lights go down, and Wenda begins the presentation. Sitting there in the dark with our legs dangling like eight-year-olds, I begin to feel more comfortable with the situation. He seems pleasant and smart, and Fanny was right. He is handsome. The people of Bartizelle found him trustworthy enough to elect governor. Maybe it wouldn't be such a bad thing to get to know him a little better. I've been on Iona almost eight years, and sometimes it feels like I've had every conversation I can have with every person who lives here. It would be nice to have a new friend with some experiences, history, and opinions I don't already know by heart. I glance at him, and sure enough, he's looking at me quizzically. I smile in a way that I hope is friendly. He returns the smile in equal measure, then turns his attention back to Wenda's talk. I scan the audience and spot Carloa sitting in the third row. She's not listening to the presentation. Instead, she's staring at me with an expression that appears to be a mix of disgust and rage. Instead of meeting her eyes, I plaster a generic smile on my face and look past her. Her face does not change, and she glares at me for the next two hours. Orientation ends and everyone has some time to themselves before we all head back to our pods for our weekly meetings I wave farewell to Graham as he and Fanny depart Fanny coquettishly slips her arm through his and takes another moment to look over her shoulder and wink at me again I help Wendy put away the equipment and close up the theater and we walk together toward our pod on the opposite side of the residential section Tell me about Carloa I say once I'm sure we're the only ones on the path Wendy sighs I don't even know where to start, she says. I heard a commotion shortly after you left, and I found her trying to make our new residents puke up their breakfasts. She was literally sitting on him, trying to pour something down his throat. When I asked her what the problem was, she said she was concerned that our diet was too rich for them, and it would be better for them if they didn't eat it. I blink in shock. How... interesting, I finally say, choosing my words carefully. Wenda continues. I told her everyone is free to use the kitchen any time. They can make whatever they like to eat. But she didn't want to do that. She said she brought a store of special protein bars and medical supplements, and she wants the transferees to eat those things to the exclusion of everything else. For how long? Well, that's the creepy part. I asked her that same question, and she said, until the end. The end? What did she mean by that? She wouldn't explain. She started talking at lightning speed, making bizarre statements about conspiracies and not trusting anyone. No one seemed to have any idea what she was talking about. The other transferees were confused and scared. Hen and Holly were so terrorized they asked if they could move their sleeping quarters to the other end of the hallway to get away from her. What the hell? I can only think that something is seriously wrong with her that goes beyond being in shock from losing her home and everything familiar to her, Wenda says. All day, she kept trying to herd the Bartizellians around like livestock. If I asked someone how they were doing, suddenly Carlo would be there, glaring at us both. If anyone smiled or laughed or made a vaguely contented sound, Carlo was down on them in an instant. I'm basically at a loss as to how to deal with her. I know what that means. My least favorite part of being a pod leader is rearing its ugly head. All right, I'll talk to her, I say. I'm not sure I'll be able to calm her down any more than you have, but I'll give it a try. It sounds like she's determined not to fit in, and if so, I may not be able to change her mind. But hopefully I can convince her to let the other transferees decide for themselves whether life here suits them. We're a few hundred feet from our pod when we're met by Hen flying down the path toward us. His face is red and stained with tears, and his voice is cracking with panic. Come quick, he shouts. Hurry, hurry, please! Hen, what's wrong? Are you all right? I call as we quicken our pace. It's Carloa, he gasps. I think she's dead. Wenda and I trade wide-eyed looks and break into a run. Chapter Two We find her in the common area, lying on her back on the floor, her eyes frozen open in an icy stare. Her lips, nose, and fingertips are all an odd turquoise blue. Holly is pressed against the wall, crying hysterically. Our pod sister Char is hurting other members of the pod away from the common area. I call for the medic, she tells us as we come in. Darrow is working on her now. Each pod has its own emergency medical technician, and Darrow is ours. He's crouched over Carloa, searching for signs of a pulse, breath, heartbeat, anything he can monitor. He looks up at us. She's still alive, but I can't say how long she'll stay that way, he says. Holly found her like this about five minutes ago. At that moment, Medic Matcha comes in with her assistants and shoes everyone out to the courtyard except Darrow. Other members of our pod are beginning to trickle up the pathway for our weekly meeting. I intercept them one by one to tell them what has happened and direct them to the courtyard to wait. Everyone is visibly shaken. Winda huddles with the other Barzellians, speaking to them in a low, steadying voice. Holly is sitting nearby, still crying. Hen has his arms wrapped tight around his sister and is doing his best to comfort her. They may have been the last to see Carloa before her collapse, and Holly may have been witness to it. I'm sure Macho will want to question them both, as well as the Barzellians who were sitting with Carloa at the presentation, and Wenda, who spent most of the day in her company. But right now she has her hands full trying to stabilize the patient. I hate this feeling of helplessness, so I walk a few feet away from the others and ping Polly with my headset. "'What?' he booms. "'Aren't you supposed to be leading a meeting?' We've had a situation with one of the Bartazell transferees. Situation? Medical. Is Graham around? Graham? uh, Oh, the governor. Yes, he's here. Could you pass the headset over to him so I can ask a couple of questions that might help us sort this out? This better be important, Polly growls. Just a sec. A few moments later, Graham's voice pours into my ears, warm and amiable. Hello, Faith. What can I do for you? We're having a medical issue with one of our new podmates. I noticed some of the group appeared to be sick when we were checking people in yesterday. Was there anything particular that you knew of that was going around the population? Complete silence. Then Graham clears his throat. The pleasant friendly tone is gone, replaced by one of officiousness and condescension. Clearly I'm now talking to the governor. <clears throat> to what kind of thing might you be referring? Any chronic medical conditions would have been documented on stat chips and should have been fully evaluated at intake. I would anticipate there might be some reactions to the overall climate of Iona, as well as some social issues due to the transfer. Uh, Your own medical staff, though, should be able to sort this out. Of course, if your capacity in this regard is suboptimal. I mean to be diplomatic, but the tone of his voice sets me off and I can't stand it. I don't bother to let him finish his ridiculous, arrogant sentence. Harloa collapsed in my pod's common room. She's rigid and unresponsive and her face is blue. I snap. Our medic is with her now. If you know anything, you need to tell me immediately. And if this is something contagious, you need to tell everyone because this entire pod and all of your transferees may have been exposed. Furious, I snap the mic away from my face. It's all I can do not to rip my headset off and fling it across the courtyard. Idiotic bureaucracy and obfuscation were part of the reason I left Homeworld and came to Iona and it makes me crazy to think that we may have all been put in danger through whatever hubris this might be. Unsurprisingly, the next voice that comes through the headset is Polly's. Governor's on his way, he says. In a testament to Graham's common sense, he doesn't walk to my pod, but instead grabs one of the sand scooters that are scattered around the town. Within minutes, he's pulling up to the edge of the courtyard. I wave to him as he steps off the scooter and walk out to meet him. I'm relieved to see the person standing in front of me has the demeanor of the man I sat next to earlier rather than the one I spoke to over Polly's headset. His gray eyes reflect concern and his bearing is soft and considerate. How is she? he asks. I sigh. No clue. They've been working on her for 10 minutes. She was alive when Mata arrived but it didn't look good. Her pulses slowed down to almost nothing. I should talk to them. I think I have some insight into what's going on, and if I'm right, she's not in any danger of dying, but there are other potential considerations, he says. Talk to Macha first, then come talk to me, I say, ushering him into the common room. Before the door closes, I see Karloa still lying on the floor, eyes wide open. The blue has spread to most of her face and down the length of one arm. Half an hour passes before the medic and her team emerge, followed by Darrow and a hover gurney upon which Karloa is tightly strapped. Although she's wearing an oxygen mask and has a white sheet pulled up under her chin, I can see the blue coloration has cascaded across her chest and down both arms and covers her face and scalp. Her eyes at least are closed now, and her face is relaxed. Graham is last to exit the room. His expression is drawn and serious. Once clear of the doorway, Macha mounts the gurney's control seat. Daryl will fill you in, she says to me, then locks eyes with Graham and says thank you before she kicks the gurney into motion and speeds off across the sand toward Iona's medical facility. I turn to Darrow expectantly. His lips form a tight line, and he glances briefly at Graham as he speaks. She's alive and stable for now, he says. She appears to be in some kind of stasis, which is likely the result of a specific drug that she ingested. We aren't sure how long she'll stay in stasis, or if she'll come out of it at all. There are still a lot of unknowns. A drug, I exclaim. Where would she have obtained this drug? Darrow looks again at Graham, who does not respond. We believe she brought it with her from Bartazel, and I think we can be sure that this is not a threat to the rest of our residents, whether Ionian or Bartazelian. He then excuses himself and heads to clinical to continue assisting Macha with the patient. Graham crosses the pathway to me. I have a lot to tell you, he says, almost apologetically. His tone of voice suggests that this is probably an understatement at best. Let me update the pod and get them squared away, then we'll go for a walk, I say. His expression signals his agreement, and he stands aside while I bring my podmates together to fill them in. The Ionians are concerned and murmur among themselves. The Bartizellians appear shocked and no more informed than the Ionians. Holly continues to weep into his shoulder as they pace around the common room. There is no other sign remaining of the turmoil we encountered an hour or so ago when we came up the path as though the strange, rigid blue figure of Carloa lying on the floor was merely a hallucination, banished by the pale beige light of the sunset filtering through the windows. Graham and I walk away from town, toward Iona's western bluffs, and find a natural outcropping of rock that gives us a full view of Iona's moons with the town below. We sit, and I wait for him to start talking. When he does, he's deferential and unaffected. Almost a year ago, we had a pandemic scare on Bardicel, and we became known as a potential plague planet around the sector, he begins. I initially thought you were referring to that when you spoke to me earlier. Oh, I say, no wonder his initial reaction to my questioning was so terse. No, we weren't told anything about that. <sighs> well, anyway, as a response to the potential pandemic, a synthetic drug, we call it blue, was developed. It was to serve two purposes. One, it could put anyone showing signs of contagion into a stasis that would arrest the disease process and preserve them until a treatment was found. And two, by immobilizing those who were infected, it would limit the spread of the disease. Clever. A little too clever, a group of conspiracy theorists emerged who decided this drug was being foisted on them by the company to thin the ranks to save money. A worker in stasis doesn't have to be fed, housed, entertained, clothed, listened to. They began peddling this theory that people who took blue would just go into stasis and never awaken. They would simply disappear. It became a threat to our plan to fight the pandemic. Was Carloa one of those fringe extremists? She wasn't at the beginning, although we thought she might be sympathetic from some of the conversations she was having. When the pandemic didn't emerge, the extremists considered it proof of their theory and really started upping the noise. The company was out to get them, and they were going to fight back by destroying the station. Uh, They constructed a huge complex away from town where all the faithful lived together. Anyone who didn't buy into their worldview was the enemy, especially anyone aligned with the company. Of course, the company couldn't have this going on. It was destroying productivity. It was making Barzell unsafe. So they met with local leadership and told us it was time to move on the complex. Our job was to go in and extract anyone we thought might be a victim rather than an instigator, and then just take out the rest. Take out? Graham bows his head, and his voice becomes momentarily shaky. We were given authorization to use deadly force. We were determined to avoid that, but the company made it clear that we were supposed to do whatever it took to subdue these people. A powerful sense of deja vu sweeps over me. The company's prime motivation is always profit, and my personal experience has shown me that they would certainly be capable of using anyone, their own people, contractors, innocent bystanders, entire populations, as instruments of mass murder to protect it. What happened? We sent people in to evaluate their residents and to start the extraction process. We'd only begun pulling people out when we learned that they had somehow obtained an enormous quantity of blue. We sped up the extractions as best as we could, but we only managed to recover 40 people before they performed a mass ritual and dosed themselves with the drug. The whole complex, men, women, children, everyone, all in stasis. The 200 Bartizellians who weren't on the transfer roster for Iona. Yes, nearly 200 people who are now locked in suspended animation, a third of Bartizel's population. That's why the station was shut down. Why didn't the company revive them? Well, you've hit on the most difficult thing about this. There isn't an antidote for Blue. I squeak in surprise. How can there not be an antidote? The drug was developed in a hurry to try to get out in front of the anticipated pandemic. The antidote was supposed to come after we found treatments and vaccines for the illnesses we believed were about to hit Bartazelle. As long as people were in danger of dying or spreading the disease, an antidote to blue wasn't a priority. So Carloa somehow got her hands on some blue and brought it with her so she could carry on the protest? I suppose it was something like that, yes. I think she may have been intent on dosing the other Bartazellians as well, I say. Window caught her trying to pour something down Hen's throat this morning. Graham stares at his hands. The twins were among the first people we got out of the complex, he says. They were excited to leave. Their parents weren't so agreeable or so lucky. The sky is growing darker. Iona's little moons, not quite full, will not be up to the task of lighting our way home if we linger much longer. And frankly, I'm not sure how much more I can stand to hear. We should head back, I say. Graham stands and extends his hand to help me up, a graceful gesture that is totally unnecessary but which I would have found charming had we not just been talking about company-sanctioned mass murder and 200 people crazy enough to drink a drug without knowing how it would affect them or if they could be revived. How many of the extractions came to Iona? Do we need to worry about them carrying out a similar kind of protest? I ask as we walk toward the softly glowing lights of residential. They all came here, but I don't think there will be any issues, Graham says. Technically, Carloa wasn't an extraction. She'd been living at the complex a few weeks when the group performed their mass self-medication. For some reason, she didn't go through with it. We found her after the fact, sitting in the middle of a room full of people lying where they fell after consuming the drug. She was holding a cup of blue in her hand, but she was shaking like a leaf and she hadn't touched a drop. I consider this, listening to the almost meditative sound of the sand scrunching under our feet. Graham is quiet, apparently waiting for more questions. So how long were you on Bardazel? I finally ask. I hadn't thought much about his origin story until I heard in my memory his voice saying, Feathergrass? Like the plant? And I wonder how I could have missed it. When did you leave Homeworld? He winces. Ah, oh, you figured it out. Only just now. It was a good act. It wasn't all that much of an act. My family transferred to Bartizel when I was 14. My parents went back to Homeworld five years later, and I had the option to stay on, so I did. I did some temporary assignments in other sectors and put in some space-time, like most of us, but I've lived most of my life on Bartizel, more than on Homeworld, if that counts for anything. With nothing more to say, we walk back to the pod in silence. The lights are on in the common room, and I hear the sounds of dinner being served, but the usual boisterous laughter we're known for is missing tonight. I'll check on Karloa, and I'll give you a report later, Graham says as he mounts the sand scooter, kicks it into motion, and glides away. The smell of window stew is wafting through the open windows. I'm tired, and I know I should eat, even though I have no appetite. I do want to try to normalize things at least a little for my pod members, so I attempt to shake off my deepest concerns and put on a confident face. The last two days have been incredibly difficult. I want to think that tomorrow will be better, but the highest level of optimism I can reach at this point is to hope that tomorrow won't be insane. Cue awesome radio voice in 3, 2, 1. Thanks for listening. Hit subscribe or follow to make sure that you don't miss an exciting episode of Nothing Larger Than These Stars. New podcasts uploaded every Thursday. Thanks for listening.